A suspected British hacker avoids US extradition. And Uber admits it was wrong to hide a data breach. These stories and more coming up on the ISMG Security Report. Hello, I'm Matthew Schwartz. Are US computer crime laws draconian? That's one obvious question when weighing the case of Lori Love, a man who's suspected of stealing data in 2012 and 2013 from numerous US government agencies, including the FBI, US Army, Department of Defense, NASA, and the Federal Reserve. I didn't entertain any hopes that there would be a light at the end of the tunnel. I mean, one of the main differences uh, here in the UK, if I'm prosecuted, the, the maximum prison sentence would be about 36 months. In the United States, they wanted to lock me up for 99 years. And you, you don't have any hope uh, when, when you're thinking of spending the rest of your life in prison in less than humane conditions. Britain's High Court this week ruled that Love will not be extradited to the United States, in part because the country's Crown Prosecution Service previously declined to prosecute based on the U.S. charges filed against him. Love, however, could still be tried in Britain. Britain's High Court also ruled that the U.S. justice system could not be trusted to treat Love humanely, saying that his extradition would be, quote, oppressive by reason of his physical and mental condition. That includes severe depression and Asperger syndrome. But terrorism analyst Michael S. Smith II, speaking with Britain's Channel 4 News, says that the UK's failure to extradite computer criminals who have committed offenses against the US sets a dangerous precedent. This creates a dangerous precedent in terms of the UK government uh, signaling to a range of illicit actors that it is going to limit our capabilities uh, to pursue justice when these crimes occur. Mark Rash, a Washington computer crime attorney who previously had founded the Computer Crime Division at the U.S. Department of Justice, suggests otherwise. The truth is that cybercrime occurs for a lot of different reasons and is very rarely deterred by the threat of punishing somebody else. Nobody reads an article about somebody having been prosecuted for cybercrime and say, you know, I was planning on doing it, but now I won't. Rash says that if convicted of all of the charges against him in the U.S., Lori Love wouldn't have faced 99 years in prison. Rather, he would have been sentenced using federal sentencing guidelines. But Rash says those could be draconian, especially for computer crimes. They're inexact. And they can be draconian because they do look at uh, things like economic damage, economic loss and impact. And they don't necessarily have enough flexibility to deal with things like juvenile pranks and even things like what I would call criminal juvenile experimentation. Things that are clearly criminal. You know, you don't want to minimize their impact. You want to say they're clearly criminal, but they're not the same thing as a criminal heist a gang of organized criminals trying to do something terrible. A compounding problem, Rash says, is that so many people do things at a keyboard that they never do in real life. A lot of kids, and I'll say kids anywhere from the age of, you know, 11 to early 20s, who have not yet developed the kind of socialization necessary for them to not commit crimes. To them, a lot of, of what they're doing when they're sitting in their living room typing at a keyboard they're really not necessarily thinking about the impact of what they're doing. I can't be committing a crime. I'm just typing. At the same time, the damage caused by juvenile indiscretion can be severe. When I was 15, the worst thing I could do was burn the house down. Today's 15-year-olds can shut down the Federal Reserve. So what can be done? Clearly, there are no easy answers. But U.S. computer crime laws are not stopping cybercrime. 
Other countries, meanwhile, are trying more innovative approaches, including launching hacker rehab programs and emphasizing shorter sentences for young offenders, focusing on giving them a second chance. Rash says no one in the U.S. should believe that its approach couldn't be improved on. No country has a monopoly on justice in cybercrime cases. You're listening to the ISMG Security Report on ISMG Radio. ISMG, your number one source for information security news. This week, Uber was in the hot seat over its failure to notify customers and drivers of a massive data breach. ISMG Managing Editor Jeremy Kirk has the story. Hindsight, as they say, is twenty twenty, and that axiom has never been truer than for postmortems into data breach response. The ride-sharing company Uber arguably set the lowest bar after it waited a year before disclosing last November that hackers accessed 57 million accounts of its riders and drivers. It later emerged that Uber paid $100,000 through bug bounty program HackerOne to the two men who discovered the leak, but the payment was positioned as a bug bounty even though the finders made extortion-like demands. On Tuesday, Uber CEO John Flynn testified before a U.S. Senate subcommittee. He told senators that the company should have notified the public sooner about the breach and that paying off the hackers was wrong. We recognize that the bug bounty program is not an appropriate vehicle for dealing with intruders who seek to extort funds from the company. While the incident remains under the investigation by the company and others, I echo statements by Uber's new leadership that it was wrong to not disclose the breach earlier. Flynn told the committee that Uber received an anonymous email in November 2016 saying data had been leaked and demanding a six-figure payment. Uber confirmed the data was legitimate. The source was a backup file stored on Amazon's S3 storage service. The credentials to access the storage bucket had been left on GitHub, which is the web-based code-sharing and development platform. The data included 25 million Uber users in the U.S., of which 4.1 million were drivers. For the driver accounts, 600,000 records contained license numbers. Nearly all the data sets included names, email addresses, and phone numbers, and for some users, Uber IDs and location data. Eventually, Flynn says the company figured out one person in Florida had accessed the data and the person who contacted Uber lived in Canada. The two were paid after Uber received assurances that the data would be destroyed. U.S. Senator Jerry Moran pressed Flynn on Uber's justification for not notifying consumers. First of all, for you, Mr. Flynn, what's the justification that there apparently was no, in in the view of Uber that there was no legal or other obligation to notify the victims of the hack? Uh, Senator, there's there's no justification for that. Um, We should have notified our customers at the time when this did occur, and it was a mistake not to do so. Flynn's explanation probably won't sit well with regulators. Uber is facing a variety of actions across the U.S., U.K., Australia, and the Philippines. In the U.S., several state attorneys general have probes underway. 48 states have mandatory breach notification laws, but there is no federal law. But Uber's breach, as well as that of Equifax's last year, may push Congress in that direction again. For Information Security Media Group, I'm Jeremy Kirk. Next, a look at the partner's healthcare breach from last year. Joining me to discuss is Executive Editor Marianne McGee. Marianne, thanks for joining me today. Hi, Matt. What happened with the Partners Healthcare breach? Well, Partners says that it detected malware on its network in May 2017, but determined that the malware was not specifically targeted to impact its environment or its systems. Still, as Partners continued its investigation, which appears to have gone on for several months, 
partners determined that the malware may have indeed resulted in unauthorized access to certain patient data. And partner says that its analysis determined that the data was not in any specific format and that it was mixed together with computer code, dates, numbers, and other data that made it very difficult to read or decipher. What's your read on this? Are they just trying to cover it up? Well, you know, the the malware was first detected in May, and by December, that's when Partners says it completed its analysis and determined, yes, patient data was indeed impacted. But the other thing is that Partners only started notifying individuals this week, even though they made that determination in December. That doesn't necessarily mean they broke the law in any way, because under HIPAA, When entities do discover a breach impacting 500 or more individuals, they have 60 days to report the breach to federal regulators and to notify affected individuals. We're not sure exactly when in December partners determined there was a breach, but in December, you know, again, it could have fallen within that 60-day deadline since they've notified patients starting this week. Nonetheless, regulators, of course, can look into the matter, and they will, I'm sure, and they'll determine whether or not partners should notified individuals earlier when the organization first detected the malware or sometime during that forensic investigation that started in May. A lot of the data breach experts I've spoken with have said organizations should be able to notify within 30 to 60 days. They should have the systems in place that allow them to do that. This months long, we're not sure, we're still looking into it. Is that typical for an organization in the healthcare industry or is Partners Healthcare a bit of an outlier here? Well, Partners is a big and pretty mature healthcare organization, in fact. So one might assume that it did have the resources in place to accurately and thoroughly investigate the incident, but it might have been leaning on its legal counsel's advice about whether or not to report it and when. So we're not really sure what's going on. So stay tuned. Regulators are going to be having a look and we might be hearing more about Partners Healthcare Breach. That's true. Thanks, Marianne. Thanks, Matt. That's the ISMG Security Report. Our theme is by Ithaca Audio. I'm Matthew Schwartz. Catch you next time.